Hi, everyone. Thanks for giving us your time today. I'm Ian Hamilton. And in case you're new here, I'm recording this from our studio in virtual reality. I'm wearing Quest 2 with hand tracking and meta avatars. And I'm joined by my co-host, David Heaney, sitting over here. He lives on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and we've never met in the physical world. But we come together each week to talk about the latest developments shaping the next generation of personal computing. We can see live comments from YouTube when we record this at 10 a.m. Pacific on Tuesdays, and VR Download is available for listening on every major podcast platform. This week, we'll get into the news with Heaney first, and then we'll have Alex and Skiva from Between Realities on reporting back from their visit to the Augmented World Expo. Let's get into it, Heaney. What do we have today? So we have a lot of news before we get into those hands-on from AWE. We're going to talk about IDC's estimate that Quest 2 has sold almost 15 million units. We'll talk about Pimax's announcement of their new headset, the Crystal QLED. We'll talk about what Meta's CTO said about the prospect of increasing the field of view of Quest headsets. We'll talk about that strange Steam hardware survey statistic where VR usage jumped to an all-time high with seemingly no explanation and no real shift in the relative headset share. We'll talk about Quest's new system-wide blocking API, the shipping update for ET, the button-free VR controller, the shipping update for Lynx R1, which we actually talked about last week, a shipping update just last week, but now there's another one again. And finally, we'll talk about Bloomberg's report that Apple is simultaneously porting its core apps to its headset while building out developer tools to make it easy for developers to make kind of very powerful, standardized, mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality applications. Yeah, and hi, everyone in our comments. Bradley, Alex, Skiva, everyone watching, thank you so much for tuning in. Leave any questions if you're new to VR, new to our audience. Maybe they'll get to it in our comments, or maybe we'll address it in our discussion. Let's get into that first news. Quest 2 might have hit 15 million devices. Now, Estimating the size of the VR market has always been a pain. We'll discuss that at length today. And Quest in particular has been hard to estimate because Meta has historically not since, you know, Facebook has historically not since the original developer kits have they ever released sales figures for the headset. So uh, we've been very careful over the years at Upload VR not to report those unsubstantiated numbers. What's different now, Heaney? So we're reporting this as a claim. IDC is an analyst firm that produces reports about market share, market sizes, and the specific unit sales of products. In the past, as VR headset sales were very low volume, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, it wasn't really possible for these analysts to come up with anything like a realistic figure. Their techniques and their supply chain sources only really work when you're talking about millions and ideally dozens of millions or you know at least tens of millions of units so i would take this not as some sort of very specific number but as a general indicator of where quest 2 might be at this point and if that is correct if it is around 15 million 14.8 million specifically that would actually put it pretty close to playstation 5 which is a 20 million and 20 million is playstation 5's official figure and estimates of the Xbox Series X and S summed together put them at 14 million. So if these analyst estimates are correct, and that is a big if, we do need to make that clear, Quest 2 is actually more successful than the next generation Xbox consoles, which would 
I think that would be a surprising statistic to most people. A lot of people, even in the wider tech industry, would assume that VR is still this very niche, uh, low volume industry that's selling, you know, only maybe a few million units at most. But Quest 2 looks like it's the first headset, the first real headset that is in the Google Cardboard that is broken out of that niche and starting to sell double digit millions. But again, we don't know if this is correct. And in a moment, I can talk about some of the other estimates we've seen before and some of the other indicators. Yeah, it's really interesting when the number gets to this level. I wouldn't, I'm surprised that Meta isn't owning it, right? Isn't saying this is actually how many are out in the market because they, they're kind of in a class by themselves with these millions. And as I remember, the logic sort of went when Apple started releasing some numbers was that you, you only release those numbers if you're the leading device. And Meta is very clearly in that category. It's just to your point, Heaney, until I think Meta comes out and confirms this number or shows a real number to say, hey, this platform is actually competing with those other consoles, you're not going to see a major shift. But I guess my point is, wouldn't it benefit Meta really significantly at this point to come out and confirm that those numbers are comparable to other consoles? Because they've said it in their comments. Like there, There was some comments alluding to this idea that uh, the platform is strong, but it's not offered in context compared to existing consoles, right? So when I was watching the GDC talk from Meta's head of VR development ecosystem, I believe that's his title, it's something along those lines, he was kind of arguing that there really isn't a point for them to give out this unit sales number because all that matters is how many people, well, all that matters to developers, which is who this number would be given out for, is how many people are actually buying content? What is the content that's being sold? If you're a developer thinking of building for this platform, it doesn't matter how many headsets are out there sitting in wardrobes. It matters how many headsets are being used by people who are actually using their credit card to buy games. Because if you're a developer, you need to make money back. You can't pay the bills on, on nothing. So they Meta has over the years been revealing these kind of esoteric figures of, oh, this many million has been spent on content in the store and this many apps have made over 20 million. And to them, that from their perspective, that is the far more important figure for developers. I agree with you that it would still be better to give an outright number, even if it's just a, a monthly active users. How many people are using the Quest 2 monthly? Maybe more usefully, how many people are using the Quest 2 weekly? That's the statistic I would like to know. But I actually don't think that it would be something that even if Meta were out in front like this, I don't think they would just give a hardware sales figure for those reasons. Mm. And I'm seeing Guy Godin, the creator of Virtual Desktop, in our comments. Uh, for those of you who use Virtual Desktop, Guy just rolled out an update today that will let you run Virtual Desktop without a monitor attached to your PC. That's a, a significant update, and we will get an article on that on the website very soon. But any of you Virtual Desktop users out there, that's a pretty big feature to be able to run your PC in a VR headset without even having a monitor attached to it. So that's pretty big. Um, any comments out there that you want to respond to before we move on to Pimax? Yeah, no, like uh, like I said, I was just going to give the context of the previous figures we've heard, and Onikazi is referencing this by talking about the 10 million figure. So the, the previous figures we have are that as soon as, I think in early 2021, the now CTO of Meta said that Quest 2 had outsold not just Quest 1, but all of its predecessors combined. And there's a bit of a confusion there about whether that meant uh, included Oculus Go or not, whether that included something like Gear VR. I think it's 
the consensus there that he's referring to the Rift, the Rift S, and the Quest. Then we had that product recall in the summer of 2021, where the facial interface for Quest 2 was recalled in the United States because the foam could cause irritation to people's faces. And that product recall revealed that there were 4 million. So that was back in July, I believe, and that was only in the United States. So when you include the facial interfaces that come in the headset box and the ones that people buy afterwards as an accessory, if they need to replace theirs, there were 4 million in the United States. Then in November, we have this kind of headline figure people are talking about, where the CEO of Qualcomm during a presentation said, Quest 2 is at 10 million units. Now, Qualcomm's spokesperson very quickly backtracked on this, saying that it was a estimate, a average of third-party analyst estimates. But as we said at the time, what third-party analyst estimates were saying 10 million at that time? And who were you averaging? And are we really to believe that the CEO of Qualcomm doesn't know roughly how many XR2 chips they sold to Meta? To me, this was one of those things where public companies have specific limitations on what sales figures they're allowed to disclose and in what context. And during some talk is not where they're technically allowed to do it. So I'm not accusing the Qualcomm CEO of anything, but I do think it's rather unlikely that he just plucked that number out of his head. So if after 13 months on the market, Quest 2 was at 10 million units, then I don't think it's too unbelievable to think that after 20 months, now it's at 15 million units. That seems entirely reasonable to me. But again, these are estimates and these are not official figures. Yeah, it's it's sort of silly. We have this situation with spokespeople for various companies where they may misspeak or they may speak out of line. And those are two dramatically different situations, right? And we're not really, it, you know, it, it kind of stretches believability that the the head of that area of Qualcomm sort of didn't know exactly how many chips that they sent out to Meta. And that would be a, a really reflective figure of how many headsets are out there in the market. And I'm sure that somewhere contractually, there is some kind of, uh, you know, there's probably something that makes that a little sticky in a contract somewhere for them not to recognize those numbers. Like that does seem like it's a info that that Facebook tries to keep close to the vest. Yeah, for sure. All right, <clears throat> Pimax Crystal. All right, Pimax Crystal QLED. It's almost two thousand dollars, one thousand eight hundred ninety nine. It's a hybrid headset. With 3K resolution per eye. Now, this is a dual mode headset that Pimax claims will have the highest angular resolution on the market. Heaney, we follow Pimax very closely, even though it has something like uh, a, a slightly, you know, the percentage of Pimax users on Steam is only slightly above PlayStation VR users, right, Heaney? Yeah, and by that you mean the number of people who plug their PlayStation VR into Steam using third-party software to track. You know, uh, it is something like zero point three percent. We're talking about a very small percentage of Steam. Uh, but what's interesting about this headset is that this is the first headset that breaks away from Pimax's core brand of ultra-wide field of view. So all of their headsets mm-hmm. in the past have had a horizontal field of view of something like 150 degrees. There was the cheaper model, the Pimax Artisan, that came out with something like 130 degrees. But this headset is the first time where they're trying to do something different. Instead of trying to make the widest field of view headset, they're now trying to make the sharpest headset, the one with the clearest, highest resolution image. 
Now, what's strange about this headset is that it's remarkably similar to the uh, Reality 12K QLED, which was announced last year. But the Reality 12K QLED is supposed to come out for $2,400 in Q4 of this year. And it was announced back in October, so you know more than a year in advance. But this thing is now just announced now to come out in Q3 of this year. It's a quite a bizarre thing to why not announce it back then? It seems like this is some sort of very quickly put together product. The unique feature of this that I find very interesting is that it comes with two sets of lenses and they can actually be swapped out. So the default lenses have a horizontal field of view of 110 degrees, which is around the same as the valve index, but you can swap out to wider field of view lenses with 120 degrees. Why you would why they bother with the difference of 10 <laughs> degrees, I really don't understand why you would go to all this engineering complexity and presumably increase the price of the product for that when you're already selling a wide field of view headset a few months later. I, I The thing I've always struck with with Pimax is it seems like they have so much greatness there, but not enough focus. They seem to keep wanting to launch as many products as possible. And I really think that this company could be successful if they would just focus on one headset one product build the best headset you can focus on it don't try to cover the entire market because you're not selling uh, huge numbers of units anyway surely the the overhead of trying to launch this many products is going to cause more problems than if you would just focus on perfecting one so just to be clear for people who aren't familiar with this product is it is a standalone headset in the sense that it has the cmxr2 chip as quest 2 though they kind of are marketing this as a hybrid headset in that you can use native DisplayPort and you can use either a Airlink virtual desktop style Wi-Fi 6E streaming, or you can use you can buy a dedicated Y-Gig adapter to do kind of uncompressed or near uncompressed wireless VR. So this will mostly realistically be used as a PC headset simply because there's no indication yet that any major developers are going to release their content on Pimax's standalone store. They will likely have, you know, a, a fraction of the content that even Pico does, which is a fraction of the content of Quest. And when you want to build a kind of new ecosystem out in a standalone headset, that's really the key. Though we'll see. But I, what they're pitching this as a competitor to is the Vario Aero. The Aero being a nineteen ninety dollar PC headset that until now has had the highest resolution. Though that price does not come with the required base stations whereas this has inside-out tracking, and it doesn't come with controllers, whereas this has controllers in the package. So if this product delivers in the way that Pimax is saying, then it really could take Vario Aero's place in the market. But it's One of the biggest ifs was, that you've ever given an if uh, for, right? Like, Yes. I We've reported multiple times in the past about how Pimax has failed to meet their shipping deadlines. And again, it just comes back to that, what I was saying, where... If only they would stop trying to build 15 headsets instead of just building one, I think this company could actually produce something really great. But just when I thought they were focusing on that one headset, the 12K QLED, and I was like, wow, okay, finally they understand. One headset. They come out with this thing that's apparently shipping in a few months. <laughs> All right, so I, I, I've seen our comments sort of explode here. Uh, people are really fired up about uh, the bad ideas here that are just... Uh, shouting out at them. And, you know, whenever I show off VR to people, I always like to ask them right at the beginning of the demo which set of lenses uh, they'd like me to screw into the headset, right? The very first thing I love to do with my demo is is take a whole bunch of screws out of the headset and swap out the lenses so that they can have a wide... It's just the, 
I can never imagine a scenario where I'm going to be like, do you want the wide field of view or the narrow field of view? And uh, the commenters, multiple people bringing up the idea that if you're swapping this, a single speck of dust getting into there in between the lenses and the display is going to ruin your experience permanently. Very, very uh, bizarre situation there. Yeah, especially given, you know, this thing is what, uh, $1,900, but then for $2,400, you get the reality 12K QLED, which has got 6K panels and a 200 degree field of view. Why would that not, why does that one not have the swappable lenses? I, I guess maybe, you know, the display is obviously not going to be able to match the same, but very odd decision from Pimax. But we'll see, you know, we haven't seen, we haven't even been able to try this new reality series from Pimax. We haven't had a chance to have hands on, but we certainly are interested to try it and we'll, you know, we will be fair to it. And hopefully oh, yeah. they do manage to ship something here because as we'll talk about in our next topic, I believe, if I've got the list right, yes. The, when it comes to companies like Meta and even to a lesser degree like HTC, there has been a stagnation in field of view over the past six years. And the, the one thing Pimax has done to its credit is prove that you actually can ship wide field of view VR. It isn't just some future fantasy. And that's why I find it so frustrating that Pimax makes these kind of strange missteps. Yeah, very strange. And I'm seeing Bradley's comment that he was putting together a video uh, trying to break this down. He's like, no, that's that's actually too negative. I mean, just canceled doing the video. And I totally understand that mindset where we're, we're covering this company. And one of the things, if you go to Pimax's website, I, I can't comprehend why they have a mystery box for a VR headset. Who, If you go to Pimax's website, they, they sell like a, a box that's like, I want to say five or $600. And it, it's almost like they're going to throw in whatever is just lying around the floor at Pimax HQ into that box and, and ship it off to you. And like, who is that buyer? Who who's who's going to get a headset with mystery components? And I, I can't I can't get it. It's it's bizarre. All right, I'm ready to move on. How about you, Eni? Yeah, I think we can move on to the next topic here. <laughs> All right. So the next subject is that Meta's CTO shared his thoughts on increasing the field of view for Quest headsets, saying wider field of view is not necessarily the right trade-off. So very interesting here. We talk a lot about expanding the field of view in future headsets, and a lot of people are obsessed with this idea of it getting wider. But Meta's CTO, Andrew Bosworth, has repeatedly now mentioned that he thinks vertically is actually a more significant addition uh, for presence. And I, I think in his quote, he actually talked about feeling like he's on the edge of a cliff in a VR headset, right, Heaney? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, we've, we've heard him say this before, but this is the first time we've written it up in an article just because this was a lot more kind of full as answer here. As you say, he's saying that he's tried demos, obviously within meta of really wide field of view headsets. And he's saying that what really got him was tall field of view headsets where he could feel like he was the edge of a cliff. And as we've spoken before on this show, that's actually something that Valve's research back in either 2013 or 2014 revealed as well. And it was one of the reasons that the HTC Vive shipped with a taller field of view than the Oculus Rift. Because if you're in a, in a room, in a standard environment, a virtual room, being able to see the floor at the real height of the floor that your feet are feeling and being able to see that ceiling means that you kind of, your brain somehow feels like it's more actually in that environment. So I, I don't doubt this, but the other part of his, his comment was simply talking about expanding field of view in general. And he said, 
Field of view is a really expensive thing to increase because you're adding a lot of pixels that by definition won't be that useful. They'll be in the periphery and they're just as expensive to par. So far, it hasn't felt like the right trade-off. And for me, I just can't agree with this. For six years now, we've seen no increase of any kind of significant sort in the field of view of these Oculus, Facebook, Meta headsets, whatever you want to call them. We've seen, obviously, you know what I'm showing here, we've seen demos of a 140-degree field of view lens. We've seen another lens that's kind of hinted to be 20% wider than Quest, but nothing that's actually shipping into products. And fundamentally, the field of view is what makes VR immersive. It's what the difference between VR and looking at some sort of monitor or looking at one of the very narrow field of view head-mounted displays available in the market is. And I've tried wide field of view headsets. At CES this year, I got to try the first one that I've ever known of that doesn't have a distortion issue, that actually is just very wide field of view without distortion. And it really does increase the immersion. I don't understand Bosworth's argument here that it's just not worth it. Yes, it's going to cost, have a more, you're going to have pixels that are not being used for things like resolution. But if you're already shipping a headset that's designed for remote work, Cambria, with these kind of compact lenses that can't be wide field of view, then that's the product for people who want to do remote work and read tiny text. People who are buying Quest, the, you know, the main Quest line, Quest 2, and presumably in future Quest 3, they're majority gamers or people looking for an immersive experience. Even within social VR, you want to feel immersed in the environment. You want to be able to see people when they're behind you without having to turn your head, sorry, to each side of you without having to turn your head. Immersion matters, and I really think that Meta should be prioritizing this more than they are. Yeah, sadly, it's Bradley asking this fundamental question right here at the most recent comments. You have to question, after they reach the clarity form factor, what features in lenses do they want next? They're playing off a of field of view, but maybe they want other next-gen features. And uh, I was going in the same direction with my thought processes, Heaney. You remember the fabled Quest 2 that got killed, right? The products that were under Brendan Arib's purview, I think, over there at Facebook. Uh, that's, of course, one of the co-founders of the original Oculus. As I understand it, he evolved into this position where he was kind of running some next-gen projects that just got killed. And Rift 2 was one of those that got reported. I do wonder what the trade-off was in that PC product that that just got snuffed out. And uh, one of these days, I'd love to know what the specs of that device were. Yeah, I think when when you're building a headset for just PC, it's obviously a lot easier. Whereas, you know, Bosworth's talking about these extra pixels, not just in the sense that you then have to increase the display resolution, but in the sense that that's a lot more work on the processor to render. And even if you're talking about the same resolution, increasing the field of view will, as we said on this show before, be more difficult to render because there's simply more geometry being seen. And you can imagine a hypothetical headset, obviously, human field of view is just over 200 degrees. But if you had a hypothetical headset that had somehow 270 degrees, for example, and you were in some sort of outdoor virtual environment, you would have to render everything, almost you know, including behind you, which would be incredibly bad for performance. So as you increase that field of view, more and more geometry is in view and it gets harder and harder. But it still should be something that's prioritized. And ho you would hope that if they're able to put eye tracking in these headsets and they're able to achieve foveated rendering, like PlayStation VR 2 is promising, we don't know if Cambria will, but PlayStation VR 2 at least is promising, then surely they can use some of those techniques to mitigate it. 
at the very least, I don't, even if they didn't have eye tracking, I don't think a lot of people would mind if there was a fixed foveated rendering that was always on so that you have this peripheral vision beyond what we have today, but it's lower resolution. As long as the fade was right and there was no kind of harsh cutoff, I think a lot of people would accept that for the increased immersion of just Mm. having some basic peripheral vision. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I wonder really about the comfort. We've come back to that a couple of times, Heaney, about whether comfort issues uh, multiply or become larger if you expand the field of view. And, you know, I don't know if that has any sort of place in this discussion, right? So, like, if I think of a game like, I don't know, Boneworks, obviously there's a, there's a bone lab coming to quest, right? And so that'll be some of the, the Boneworks pieces coming to the quest headset. And you think about the way you move around in that experience, just moving all over the landscape and you could get sick in 20 minutes, five minutes, 30 seconds, depending how susceptible you are to it. If you increase the field of view, and if they did any user studies on the increase of field of view with that kind of locomotion and found that it makes people more uncomfortable more often, you've got this really tricky situation where the smooth locomotion people, the people who are really comfortable using smooth locomotion, would probably want that headset in larger numbers. But at the same time, Meta is targeting average Joes who they don't want to ever get sick in a headset. So when you're talking about the trade-offs, they may have chosen that trade-off, right? Yeah, but I mean, we already have mitigation methods for that today. That That's why in a game, when you're, when you're walking around, you have those blinders that come in. The The wider that field of view, the more that you're, what your eye is seeing is going to disagree with what your inner ear is feeling, i.e. nothing. So they can just bring in those blinders like normal and bring it down to the field of view of today. And for people who don't get motion sick, they'll be able to enjoy the full field of view even while they're moving. Absolutely, 100%. I guess what I'm arguing is I we've also heard the discussion from John Carmack and uh, internally there that they've discussed the idea of that of those blinders being a system-wide feature. And I guess I just argue or have this position that like, they need to have that as a system-wide blinder feature before they dramatically increase the field of view. Like that would be my guess as to why they they don't think it's the right trade-off right now. Just looking at Nutella Bra's comment here, they're bringing kind of the opposite perspective here, saying that when they're immersed in a game, uh, they don't notice the field of view. They just kind of are so focused on the game they're in. I agree with that to a certain extent. But you have to remember that when we're talking about virtual reality and the feeling of, of presence, it's actually a subconscious feeling. It's not something you're consciously noticing. It is how much of your reptilian brain that is designed to see, you know, shapes and patterns and kind of place yourself in a three-dimensional environment, how much is it being convinced that you're actually in another place, that you're, the virtual world that you're being presented with is actually real? And, you know, you see, you achieve presence when you accidentally lean on a virtual pool table and fall over on your floor because you thought it was real. Or when someone throws something at you and you instinctually duck, even though it's a completely virtual object and there was no conscious need to duck, you're consciously aware that it's a virtual object. You're consciously aware that that's a virtual pool table. But if your subconscious can be tricked, that's when it starts to, you start to feel presence. And what the research indicates is that as you increase the field of view, the, the percentage of people whose subconscious will be tricked will be higher. And the time, the duration for which your subconscious will be tricked, because presence is often a fleeting thing, the duration will actually increase. So that's why, you know, from my perspective, it's it's important to immersion. But I, I guess the word I really should be using is presence. 
So Wapo asking, when did Carmack say that? I believe it was between a conversation between uh, Bosworth and Carmack. If you search Andrew Bosworth, John Carmack, audio transcription with uploadvr.com, I think we have that as a full transcription where he talked about that potential of that system-wide uh, mitigation techniques that they could really roll out. Are we ready to move on to the next subject? Yep, let's talk about that Steam VR statistic. Yes. Okay. So each month, SteamVR updates us on how many people are actually using SteamVR and Steam uh, as well, as well as what headsets they're using on Steam. And this month, there was a dramatic shift for no clear reason in the percentage of people using SteamVR. Uh, Heaney, what is your best guess as to what's going on here? So... As you say, we have this completely anomalous increase in the number of Steam users with a VR headset up to 3.24%, which is by far an all-time high. You may wonder, why does this data only go back to early 2020? And that's because that's when Valve changed the technique. Before then, it would only detect your headset if it was plugged in at the time via USB. Whereas since March 2020, just before the release of Half-Life Alex, it scans your Steam VR logs for the past month. So there's no actual dramatic increase in any particular headset here in terms of its relative share to the others. There's no indication that any headset had some sort of surprise sales surge beyond anything we've seen before. It's not like there was just a Half-Life Alex-style game released. From all indications, this is anomalous data. We did speculate in our article that this could be to a drop-off could be due to a drop-off in Chinese language users that is also noted in the hardware survey. But even that would not explain the magnitude of this change. I think this is most likely either a glitch or Valve was undercounting the number of people in every month beforehand through a glitch. So either this is a glitch or every previous data point was a glitch. Either this is overcounting or they were overcounting. There is really no conceivable way that this is has some sort of rational explanation of some new game or headset seal. So we did, obviously, as soon as this number hit, we reached out to Valve. I sent an email there and tried to find out if they had some kind of explanation for this. And I think it's telling that we haven't received a response, right? When you had this, you know, you you went and looked at these numbers and you found a drop in the number of people who had set their system to use Chinese characters, right, Heaney? And if you have a dramatic drop in the number of people who are accessing steam in china no vr headsets none of the western vr headsets are sold in china so you could cut off a huge number of vr users or or, you know the percentages shift dramatically right there heaney explain break that down for us because that seemed like you know if they lost a whole bunch of chinese users overnight that would explain why valve didn't get back to us yeah, no, it, it does, like I'll bring up this statistic here where you see that the number of simplified Chinese users have dropped by a significant percentage. So if they are not using the Western VR headsets that are being counted on Steam, then the remainder of people, the percentage of them that are using a VR headset is going to be higher. But the, the MAS doesn't work. It still doesn't get you to this point. That would explain a small jump, but we're talking about a dramatic jump. Look at that graph. It really is completely unprecedented. And I want to explain that, you know, people in the comments are speculating just as people on Twitter were and in our article comments that, you know, there's some kind of 
reason that you know new VR mods were out recently or the kids are out of school. I want to show you why we don't think that's the case. Because if you look here at the other statistics, the relative headset percentage, so of the people of these people who are using VR, what percentage are using each headset, there's no shift. If it was kids coming back from school, you would notice some sort of increase in Quest 2, or even just the newer headsets you would notice. But there is almost no statistically significant change in any headset here. It's it seems incredibly unlikely that there was any kind of shift there. The only thing that has dramatically shifted is this figure at the bottom, the overall figure. And so I really have to go back to the, the, the core theory here. The primary theory by far is that either all the previous data was undercounting due to some sort of glitch or this current data is overcounting. I think it's almost certainly one of those two. And Bradley, uh, laughing that, yeah, this caused a war. This chart alone caused a war on Twitter. And I'm seeing in our comments, maybe I misspoke a little bit here. Andrew Bosworth, CTO, has made a couple comments about vertical field of view being better than wide uh, wide field of view. And then separate to that, John Carmack has made comments in the past about the usefulness of a system-wide blinder techniques. He, he made these comments about uh, how they could theoretically use depth data, right, Heaney? to provide uh, really smart blinders in across a whole a whole range of apps, right, Heaney? Yeah, I'm just looking at the comments here. Someone suggesting there could be the Humble Bundle event or Must Play VR. Again, you, you say that sold 52K. This increase, it's, you're talking more like a million, you know what I mean? You're talking like more than a million users. Uh, this is not the kind of thing that can be explained by, by any of this Honestly, the, we, we really hope to hear back from Valve soon. And it's quite surprising we haven't heard back because, like I said, back when we changed this data, uh, they told us all about how they were collecting the data. They were very informative. But it is quite mysterious. It's it, Perhaps they don't want to admit to the mistake that they have made when it comes to what exactly has caused this. But I guess the answer will be revealed next month because next month either this will stay pretty much the same, you know, plus or minus a little bit, or it will go back to what it was before. And that'll tell you whether the previous data was an anomaly or this data. Yeah, and of course, the reason, Heaney sort of already alluded to this, but just to be clear for the viewers that haven't followed this week to week, this number, if we know the total number of Steam users, gives us an estimate of how many millions of people are using PC VR headsets, at least through Steam. But we know the majority of PC VR users are going to be using Steam. So it gives us a really good indicator of the size of the market so having this shift uh potentially equate to a couple million pcvr users kind of really throws a lot of people's market conceptions into disarray any comments there to respond to before we move on to the next one i think we can move on to the next subject here which is the quest system-wide blocking api yeah, so Quest now has a system-wide blocking API so that developers can keep people that you already blocked in other apps away from you. Can you break, break this down for us, how this operates in comparison to the Facebook account requirement? So it's not really to do with the Facebook account requirement or anything like that. This is more the fact that if you're on Quest using a social VR app, most different platforms have their own account system. Meta will let you use their friends list and matchmaking system within Oculus. You know, you have your Oculus username 
and you can kind of do things like invite people to a party and launch into a session. But the majority of the most popular apps use their own separate account system. So say you're in Rec Room and you block someone. Well, when you go over to another app, be it a multiplayer game or you know VR chat or Horizon, that same person could then meet you again and harass or troll you all over again. There's no consistency in blocking someone in one app to making it that you've blocked them across the entire Quest experience. So what Meta has shipped here is a blocking API where the developer gets access to a unique identifier for each user that's in the app, which is specific to that app. So when you click on block in something like Rec Room, which I want to be clear has not implemented this, no developer has yet implemented this, if they were to implement this, they could then launch this prompt, which would come up in the system menu and allow you to block them their actual Oculus profile. So the second part of this API is the developers can then query all of the people who you've blocked and they can use that information, which to be clear is a unique identifier, not their username or anything like that. They can use that information to either mute those players or ideally make sure that they're not in the same matchmaking session at all, that they are never actually put together with you. So the big question here is, will any developers actually bother to implement this? I, I don't say bother to, to say that they're lazy in any way. I'm just saying developers have priorities. They have limited time. They have limited resources. If they're building cross-platform applications, they may not prioritize building something that's platform-specific like this. But if they do, this can lead to a situation in the long-term future where you block someone that's being horrible to you in one app, and you don't have to worry about bumping into them again in another app. The big open question for me here on this is when, if ever, will Meta mandate this? This is currently a recommendation for developers. It just came out a few days ago. But I suspect that at some point, be it two years or five years or 10 years from now, this will be required for the Quest store. Yeah, that's what I was confused by or what I was going at with my question because they do have blocking across Facebook's own apps, right? If you... If you go into, say, uh, what is it, Horizon Worlds and block somebody and then go into Horizon Workrooms and somehow encountered that same person, the block from one app should continue over the other app, right, Heaney? I'm not sure, actually. I, I don't know that off myself. Hmm. Uh, have you asked them about that? I, I don't think that No, I haven't asked them. I haven't confirmed that. It's more, I was trying to figure out, like, there's, there's blocking within Facebook's apps, and then there's blocking within developers' apps. And I was trying to understand how these systems transition to what we expect to be is a new meta account system very soon, right, Heaney? So again, the, the account system you use to log in, log in is separate from your profile. Think of this as not blocking an account, but blocking, blocking a profile. So regardless of whether you're using a Quest 1 with an Oculus account that is not linked to Facebook, or a Quest 2 with a, something that's linked to Facebook, you still have this separate Oculus profile that has your Oculus username, which is a separate thing from your actual real name on Facebook. And when you block here, you're not blocking someone's Facebook profile you're blocking the Oculus account that is associated with that based on the username that they have. So even when they swap over to a meta account or whatever the plan is to get rid of Facebook, it shouldn't change anything about this. That, that's just how you access the device yourself, not how other people interact with you, which is through this friend profile system. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. All right, I think we're ready to move on to the next one. We've got a few more things to get in here before we get Alex and Skiva in here to go through their augmented world expo demos. E.T., yeah, yeah, ET expects to start shipping its first batch of button-free VR controllers in the next couple months. 
Heaney, why don't you run us through how these controllers differ from some of the other things we've got on the market? So yeah, this is something that has been a concept for years. The idea is kind of radical simplicity, where instead of the current paradigm of using you know sticks and triggers and buttons, this is entirely about just kind of gripping and using the controller in a much more natural way, where it, you know it's a balance between the dichotomy today of kind of overcomplicated gaming-like controllers and hand tracking with no haptics. So uh, let me just look up the pricing for this. Uh, their pre-orders are still running with a, a non-tracked 3DOF version costing $250. I don't know why on earth you'd want that. But this version here with Steam VR tracking attached is $325. So I guess the, the question a lot of people are going to be wondering is what apps and games will support this? If any app that uses Steam VR's skeletal API for hand tracking should theoretically support this, but again... <laughs> you're not going to really have the same experience because developers are expecting you to have either a touch-like controller, a Vive wand, or the index controllers. I suspect, though, you'll see the popular apps like VRChat properly support this. But in general, I don't think this is going to be something that is really for consumers. I think they're, they're shipping, what, 400 units of this at the start? I think this is probably going to find its place over time in specific enterprise applications where they want to bring in people who don't, don't want to learn how to use a... a split in half xbox controller but they also don't want the lack of haptics that hand tracking has and i think if that is the focus that et go for they'll probably find a lot more success than trying to make this some sort of consumer phenomenon yeah i held these in my hand a couple years ago at one of the ces events and it was a pretty interesting product and i in retrospect i'm trying to remember if i tried them before actually getting my hands into the index controllers or whether it was after but it's it's really tough when the index controllers themselves are only really advantageous in like a, f- a few experiences. Half-Life Alex has some, some non-essential features where you can like crush a can in your hand just by squeezing the grip on those, on those touch-sensitive buttons in the middle. I'm not seeing the benefit here. Uh, I, I understand what you said, like certain enterprise use cases, but like... I don't. I don't know if it makes sense to go and get those over index controllers or or more traditional Vive ones, especially when you can use them in so many other apps. Uh, with without, like it's been really nightmarish over on Steam VR to have to do custom mapping for a lot of those experiences. Yeah, it's so. It's simplicity is one thing, but as as Skeev has pointed out in the comments, it, the finger tracking here is also a lot more precise. You're talking about something that basically gives you, you know, full fidelity finger tracking. I do agree with you, though. There's very little chance that you're not going to have a nightmare with this in terms of doing all that Steam VR remapping. And it is just like a, a worst case than the index controllers, which had those unique fancy features. But at the end of the day, developers don't build for the coolest controller. They build for the controller that everyone actually owns. And when Valve decided to make those things $280, that killed any chance that of widespread support in major apps that, that apps are going to actually tailor for the index controllers. But Hopefully, you know, we see these kind of features come into the more affordable controllers over time, which will then mean that developers actually support it, which means, you know, people that are buying these kind of products are essentially early adopters that are pushing that forward. See, the the thing that kind of, yeah, I'm, so one of the things I've come back to here uh, a couple times over the years, Heaney, is uh, American Sign Language and the idea of using sign language. And Meta is making 
leaps and bounds to improve the hand tracking quality, even on these current sensors on the Quest 2. And we know that Cambria, the next generation, is going to have a better sensor and should potentially track your hands even more, even better. The thing that's that I've come back to a couple of times here is there is actually a very uh, robust community of people who know sign language inside of VR chat adapting the hand shapes that you use to express yourself with sign language to holding a controller in your hands. So they're basically adapting a language to change based on you holding an object in your hands. But that's not the same uh, level of ease of use for the end user as just being able to go in and naturally use the exact same hand signals you use from the real world in VR. And like, I, I guess I, I see the benefit of being able to enable long distance sign language communication as being like the bitter, the bigger win than some kind of uh, in-between interface that you still have to do. You still have to act like you're holding a held object uh, while, you know, getting some benefits of hand tracking. Yeah, it, it does seem like the use cases of this will become less and less over time as hand tracking gets better and then simultaneously as the features that are available in the low-cost controllers get better. But again, what's the production run of this? 400 units yeah. or something? I, I don't think they're going for the mass market anyway. Should we talk about Lynx R1? Yep. So the Lynx R1 is now expected to ship sometime this summer. That means that it might miss the June-July window that they just gave us quite recently. And, you know, Heaney, do you think there's any risk of a lot of products, not just Lynx, getting pushed out of this year because of the situations going on? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be out of this year, but I do think it's going to be later this year. Um, as we talked about last week, it's very strange to see that, you know, last week there was a shipping update for Lynx and then... This week, there's yet another one that pushes it further. Um, this is an unprecedented time in the global supply chains. There, the tech industry has never had to face since the kind of popularity of consumer tech exploded in the past 15, 20 years, has never had to face a supply chain crisis like this. It is affecting startups much more than the bigger companies because the bigger companies can use their leverage and their negotiation and their kind of promise of bigger future orders to secure their own supply. But it's always been risky to back Kickstarters, but today it's even riskier and you just have to accept that this is not the kind of situation where any startup can honestly give you a shipping update that is going to be solid. There are, you know, the Chinese government has enacted very strict lockdowns over the past few months that have caused massive issues in terms of getting production up and running. Uh, that is not something that can be predicted. You cannot predict the mindset or activity of either the Chinese Communist Party or of the COVID outbreaks that may or may not occur there. So this is something that you just have to take as a optimistic prediction. And again, I don't blame any of these small companies for this. This really is not it's not like they are doing something particularly wrong here. They are just beholden to the global supply chains that are required to get the components to build the products. Yeah, we, we really cannot recommend more caution uh, with backing crowdfunding projects this day and age, uh, given that you know situation. So if you're going to back a crowdfunding project, you've got to keep this in mind and understand that the risk is higher than even on a normal year. 
Hi, Andrew King, everyone else in our comments. Thank you for the discussion. It's been really fiery today over in our comments with lots of really interesting ideas. And yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know if there's a whole lot more to get into with this right now, right? Uh, the big thing that we've come back to every time we've talked about links is it is going to head up against Cambria and the Apple headset at a very different price than both of them. And that price is, it's, is a major differentiator, but uh, every month that it isn't able to ship compared to those other headsets could dramatically affect its appeal in the, in the wider view, right, Heaney? Yeah, I still do. Th- like I've said before, I still do think it has its place in the market because it is at a lower price. Though you, when you actually do factor in the VR blinder and the controllers, the price starts to narrow more than you might expect. But I do think it still does have a place as a non-meta option for a color pass-through mixed reality headset. Its success will depend on what Cambria ends up being price-wise, but given that Meta has said that it will be significantly more than $800, that still leaves Lynx with a place in the market. And obviously, there's going to be more of an incentive if you're in Europe, for example, to buy this than in the United States, given there are going to be countries like Germany where you cannot buy Cambria because of the kind of issues with the regulators there and Meta. Well, let's get into this last subject here before we have Alex and Skiva from Between Realities join us and give us that rundown of what happened at all. And uh, we might go a little bit over our hour here talking about this Apple uh, situation. So uh, yesterday, Apple announced its latest operating system features. And over the weekend, Bloomberg reported quite a bit of details on what's coming next with Apple's VR headset and its apps. Now, there's a gap here, Heaney, between what Apple actually announced at its event this week and what is being reported as as being worked on uh, still behind the scenes. So where are we, Heaney, and what are the latest expectations? Yeah, so obviously Apple has always been known as a company that very, very rarely announces its product long in advance. The iPhone was pretty much the only exception. We did speculate last week that based on Reality OS being trademarked for just after WWDC, that there may be some sort of showing, but there wasn't. There were features that were tangentially related to, to AR that if you know, you're know you trying to write some sort of clickbait article and try and really frame, you can say, oh, it was some sort of tease for the headset. But realistically, Apple barely said, I don't think Apple actually said the word AR in the entire conference or said augmented reality, which they, is they, remarkable. They also d- I noticed they avoided the word artificial too. They used the word intelligence uh, at another point in the in the presentation, just totally dropped off the word artificial off of there. Very interesting to see their marketing come alive. Yeah, it's, and that's something I think we've seen before. But we, you know, we've seen Apple talk about augmented reality. Apple does use the term. It, it AR Kit is you know named AR Kit for a reason. But in this conference, they were very careful to not use the term, and I think that's because they're trying to see of all of this for one big reveal that blows everyone away and announces it all at the same time. They don't want to tease this little by little until they know they can ship the product. Uh, but Bloomberg's report is saying that Apple is currently working hard on software on, t- on two fronts. They are making first-party software for this headset. They're making a, a VR version of FaceTime that is driven by face tracking on Memoji-style avatars, similar to this, I guess, but you know we're, we're not using face tracking. Project Cambria from Meta will use face tracking. Apple's headset is rumored to use face tracking. They're also apparently working on a VR version of Maps, which 
I assume is going to be something like Google Earth VR, which is interesting because that's not something that's available natively on Quest. You have to use a PC as well as their core productivity software, such as Notes and Calendar for, you know, bringing, being able to take and retrieve your notes in AR. And this is something that we've talked about before, where Apple has this ecosystem advantage of having this existing range of high quality first party software that already exists on, if you're an Apple user, your phone, your tablet, your laptop, your PC, your watch. And when, if they can integrate all that together and offer the same services seamlessly on your headset, then that starts to make this a lot more of a practical product than Meta's headset, where it's still very gaming focused and it's still completely in many ways detached from your phone. Yes, you have notifications. Yes, you have Facebook Messenger. But when it comes to the core functionality you're looking for, these things are still separate. And, you know, even with Facebook Messenger, you still can't today make a video call in quest using your avatar to talk to someone which is crazy because it was a feature of facebook spaces and it seems like something that meta would very obviously want to focus on so apple will obviously be able to beat them to their own game at that which would be surprising if this reports to be believed the other interesting tidbit is bloomberg says that they're working on the ability to view your max display in ar or vr which is obviously something we were talking about earlier with virtual desktop from gee godin makes that available on quest 2 apple are obviously looking to do that and they could with having operating system integration means that you likely won't have to install any kind of software it could be completely seamless where you're working on your mac and you put your headset on and your monitors in front of you and you have these kind of two or three other virtual monitors you can drag your apps onto the, the potential here, given Apple's ecosystem integration, to make this something that fits into your existing workflow is truly hard to understate. It is something that could potentially blow Meta away when it comes to productivity features. So uh, we can talk about the developer features in a bit if you want to kind of talk about the consumer apps here first. Uh, well, I, I, have, I have my thoughts are all over the board here with some of the things I wanted to get into. The one that got me uh, from the presentation, which we're, we're kind of looking for some of the details because WWDC is still ongoing and some of these details will come out over the course of the week. But the room capture feature uh, looked really significant there, Heaney. And uh, I think it's really interesting. We've got uh, Guy out there who specifically made that comment to Meta very recently, that question to Meta of why isn't the segmentation of everything in your vi- environment automatic? And the very first examples that we're seeing from people scanning their environment with uh, iOS devices and getting really detailed maps out of that scanning process very quickly, it's it's quite impressive, at least from what I've seen on Twitter. I haven't actually used it myself. Uh, but compared to this manual outlining process that I've got on the current Quest, it, it looks like night and day as far as the quality of, of that, that system. And I'm seeing Bradley in our comments here mention that Meta needs to get that first-party app stuff going hard. And that's that's kind of exactly the situation or, or, or the problem here where Apple is going to get first-party software. So this stuff is is effortless for some of their developers. And there's still a lot of things for Meta to do uh, competing with that. Yeah, Meta is trying to build its own kind of operating system and platform and services from scratch in very few years, but Apple has been at this game for decades. So it's really, it's a no way a fair fight, and that's where Apple's going to be able to leverage its advantage. 
We've talked before about how Meta can leverage its advantage in machine learning, although some of the things we saw at WWDC show that Apple is clearly catching up in, in machine learning in, in recent years. The idea that Apple is behind is, is perhaps starting to get quite outdated in that maybe four years ago Apple was behind, but now it looks like their machine learning division is just as competent as the likes of Google and Meta, and they're able to actually ship, which is interesting because Meta this week actually announced, or last week actually announced, that they were going to kind of reorganize how their company places their AI researchers. And instead of having them in this kind of separate research lab, they're going to bring them into the product teams so that the people who would formerly work on AI research for AR glasses and VR headsets will now be kind of moved into the Reality Labs core team and work with the same people who are building products, which is, from what I understand, what Apple have already been doing. So that'll be an interesting kind of competition. But to talk about the other aspect of this Bloomberg report, we're told that Apple is also now working on its developer tools. So when you're building something for Quest, you're using Unity or Unreal. And it sounds like it, it, you know, we don't know yet if that'll be something you can use for Apple's headset. Probably you can when it comes to VR. But Apple is actually trying to use a much more simple approach to development that, as we've talked about before in this show, has the potential to completely transform how, v, how VR and AR content is made and used and the standardization. So their work, there's a, Apple have a framework called Swift UI, which allows developers to really easily create high quality user interfaces for their iPhone and iPad and, and Mac apps. And they're apparently working on a virtual reality version of that. So where today you, you go into VR apps and they have wildly different user interfaces because each developer has to kind of rewrite their own. Though there is an interaction SDK now, it's not widely used. Uh, Apple is going to provide this from the start so that you have this consistent user interface across all these apps. They're then also going to integrate this into their existing Reality Kit framework, which is what's used to you're able to use to build AR Kit apps, and it will handle the things like physics and positional sound and rendering, including you know lighting and materials and all of this, so that the developer doesn't have to reinvent all of these things each time. That's one of the biggest issues on Quest, from my view, that people very rarely talk about, is that because all of this is kind of being done from this old game engine concept of every developer rebuilding absolutely everything from scratch, having to take years to build games, because for some reason, every developer needs to build their own of all of these systems, Apple is going to provide this for the developer. They're going to do all of the hard work, and they're going to do it, this is the important part, they're going to do it within the best practices at the highest quality possible so that the developer can focus on building the actual content itself. So if you're able to use Apple's development tools with Swift UI and Reality Kit and Reality Composer, there's this potential that development on Apple will not only be easier, but will provide a more consistent and high-quality experience across the entire OS. And a job listing we find in December hints at something even more profound, that these frameworks will be inherently networked. They will have multiplayer inherently. So Potentially, if you have two Apple headsets in the same space, when a developer puts UI in front of you, other people can then see that same UI. When you put an object in the space, instead of having to use a third-party networking tool and kind of write this all from scratch yourself, Apple's system will handle that so that it's all seamless. And that would also work across the internet as well. So I've always thought that in VR, the experience of having the, the, the kind of all of the little details right when it comes to interactions with your hands, when it comes to audio, when it comes to physics are so important that the developers should have the option to build it themselves, but they should by default be provided by the system. And if Apple can do that, they're going to potentially be able to provide an experience that goes far beyond what Meta has thought of. 
So, so a lot of really uh, high quality comments here discussing the situation from different angles. So Guy Godin saying Meta has never been good at first party software, though, looking back through their history. Bradley making the comment that it's Android versus iOS all over again. And it's it's funny when Meta Meta's system is based on Android uh, as well. And then Chris Richardson making the comment that so much speculation in Apple's superior order without a shred of fact to back it up. I will wait with popcorn ready to see this new master into the market. And then Jonathan saying, I'm interested to see how Apple's HMD will be integrated with their other devices. HoloLens has a spectator view, and it's a good example of what's possible. And we even saw that a little bit in the software, right, Heaney, that, that Apple showed off was like, you'd be able to use your iPhone camera as your webcam for your, your computer. Uh, lots of different ways that they're going to work across devices going forward. Yep, you know, I'm thinking about setup. that. Yeah. I was going to say, with none of the setup required from third-party software, it's not something that you have to kind of put all this effort into. It just works, and that's the potential. And so I'm thinking of, like, on the Quest system, what is the must-have first-party software that, that Meta has shipped on that system? And I can only think of, of, of a couple. Uh, the store, right? I'm going straight to the store to get the games that I want to install on Meta. And it's, it's just a store, right? It's a, it's a flat-screen uh, thing where I pick an app and purchase it and it downloads. And then there's the Guardian system, right? The Guardian system that keeps me safe in, inside the headset. And then the Guardian system has three different subsystems inside it right now, Heaney, or I don't know if it's all called Guardian, but there's Space Sense, which alerts me to objects over there. There's now the new room experimental setup that lets me manually set up the room. And then there's uh, the, of course, the original Guardian system, which lets me mark out those points on the floor. And since 2019, when that system first shipped, it's it's appeared to be in a class by itself something Meta can you you know is doing that Valve is not doing. That like you know the the system to go set up a room on SteamVR feels ancient by comparison to that Guardian setup. What we're saying with Apple is it could f- make Guardian feel ancient. But to some of these comments points, we haven't actually done it in headset. So we don't know how that feels. And there's other things, right, Heaney, from like the moment you open an Apple device uh, these days, you've got notes, you've got mail, you've got messages and FaceTime, all these cornerstone apps. And over on Facebook with the, the, the meta software, right, it's still a kind of a huge pain to do like a messenger call across devices and uh, to do those sorts of things. Um, the, the thing that kind of destroyed me, Heaney, on this is I, I, uh, you pointed out to me that the new FaceTime uh, is link-based and web-based, and you could theoretically, with the multitasking on a Quest headset, bring up a FaceTime call while you're doing other things in a headset, right, Heaney? Well, not while you're in a VR app. You know, there's no multitasking in the browser, for that. Yeah, yeah. You, I would say, you know, to come back to your question, the, the essential software, the only good software that comes from Meta on the Quest is, is the browser and workrooms, as Anna Kali's pointed mm-hmm. out. You know, those things like Guardian, those those are system level kind of components. But we're, what we're talking about here, when it comes to you know FaceTime, Maps, Notes, and Calendar, is those actual kind of end user applications. And I, you know, I think it is workrooms. Workrooms, as I said at the time, and I still stand by, is the first good. The first great piece of VR software that Meta slash Facebook has actually released. If they can deliver software that is as good as Workrooms, 
then they can somehow, then there is hope that they're going to build out a kind of ecosystem that can compete with Apple. But if it's just an anomaly and everything else is going to be like the other software they've released, then they really don't have any chance here. And so, yeah, you do have multitasking in the browser. You have to, you know, I don't, I don't like to call that multitasking personally. I, I call it having three browser windows open. I, I don't really see how that's multitasking personally, mm. but. The, you know, multitasking to me is being able to be in this room right now and bring up a browser window and then Google something and then close it and keep talking to you the whole time. To me, that's multitasking. And that's something that is rumored to potentially come with Cambria, but is not something that's available on Quest 2. I like Guy's comment here. Uh, Guardian is the boundary feature that you need to disable to avoid performance issues, right? I haven't used it in months. I like that. Uh, that's, that sounds like a sly little joke there out there from from guy from Guy, right? Yeah, there, there is a there is a small performance uh, cost to Guardian, of course. Which, but I think the vast majority of people are going to keep it on. You need to have developer mode on to even disable it anyway. Andrew is saying the major issue I see with Apple is that it took them so long to make the iPad a device that can be used effectively for productivity. Will they take that long for Reality OS? That's a really really interesting comment. I've talked about it previously on the show where. I remember grabbing the original iPad and trying to take it outside and do handwritten notes with like a stylus that stands in for my capacitive finger and I can take handwritten notes and there's no optical, you know, there's no recognition of the notes I'm handwriting. And I was outside of that original iPad and it overheated within five minutes. And that's the situation you have with the Ray-Ban glasses that are shipping from Facebook right now. If I take four or five videos out of one of those Ray-Ban glasses, those glasses will overheat almost immediately in most conditions in the United States where I am, right? It's like early summer and it's still too hot to take uh, more than a couple videos. And we've heard again and again that this thing is overheating or it's too hot, right? You think, he need, you think they're going to be able to pack all those features in here without overheating the device? That is the open question. We, you know, we've heard that from Bloomberg. Uh, the New York Times also this week reported that that's the cause of Apple's delay. Or, you know, they said it was due to the balancing of kind of performance and battery. Uh, Quo today, uh, Ming-Chi Quo, the supply chain analyst, has said that the headset is probably going to not even reach Q1 2023, but go into the second quarter of 2023. So Apple are clearly, you know, if the pro- we should say that if the product is able to be delivered in this way, then yes, it can do all these things. But maybe they're going to have to make some compromises to actually ship such a lightweight headset with such a high-performance chip and actually deliver that. The last thing I want to say on this topic is to just come back on the idea of iOS vs. Android. And also someone was saying here, like Samsung vs. Apple. I, th- I think these analogies are useful up to a point. But to kind of maybe for once in this conversation, at least this week, say something in Meta's favor... The one difference is that Meta, unlike Samsung, is the provider of both the hardware and the software. They, you know, Samsung, when you're buying a Samsung phone, you buy the majority of your content still on Google Play. You're still using Google services in the majority when it comes to actually getting apps. Meta has this unique position, which Apple has never faced before, where, yes, they're building on Android as a core, but everything on top of that is Meta's software. And the hardware is from Meta. And Meta is selling it at cost. Apple has faced Chinese manufacturers that sell at cost. Apple has faced Western manufacturers that use a profit. But they've never faced a manufacturer that is able to kind of develop their devices at a low cost around their core software, like what Meta is doing here. So I do think it's going to be 
I, you know, my my gut feeling, and this is total speculation, is that this will be a superior product. But if it's two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars, like is being rumored, it doesn't matter if Meta can still keep shipping three hundred dollar headsets that do almost the same thing, or even one thousand dollar headsets that do ninety percent of the same thing. A lot of people are still going to pick those products. And you know, some people say, you know, why isn't that the case for Windows laptops? If you actually look at market share, it is the case. It's just that Apple, you know, sells so few models compared to most of those manufacturers. It isn't a problem. But imagine that from the start, Google had instead of using these mother manufacturers, gone for an iPhone competitor that was built from their hardware. Imagine if Pixel had been there from 2007, or imagine if since the 90s, Microsoft had taken the, taken the approach of making PCs and laptops through a Surface brand, and both the hardware and the OS came together and were sold at cost. That would be a dramatically different fight than what Apple has faced before. And I don't think we know yet how Apple would actually take on such a competitor like that. Yeah, and we didn't bring it up earlier, but we did notice in that presentation there was an announcement of No Man's Sky and Resident Evil coming to the Mac. We usually leave that sort of discussion for our games cast, but we've got the VR showcase coming up that will probably take will take place of that. And those are two big games potentially for VR, and it was really interesting to see them confirmed as coming from the Mac because that could potentially open up some very interesting things down the line. And Guy making this comment that there are issues with it off, referring to The Guardian. So to play games properly, it needs to be on, unfortunately. But he also mentioned that, yeah, it's best to keep The Guardian on, but with recent updates, it's been randomly affecting app and game performance for certain things. So that's something we'll need to keep an eye on with you, Guy, and see how that performance gets rolled out, because there are a lot of people that use virtual desktop to play their games. I think we're ready to switch over to the second half of this. Thank you, Heaney, for joining us this week. We're going to get Alex and Skiva. We'll take a quick break, get them into the studio here. We'll come back and talk about Augmented World Expo. Hopefully this stream won't die on you while I do this transition. It'll be my first attempt doing that. Thank you for the amazing discussion. We'll see Heaney next week. Come back later this week for Backseat VR Dev with Between Realities and then, of course, our VR showcase where we're going to debut some new VR game trailers, some very, very big ones for the very first time. Thank you, everyone. I am dropping off. I will see you next week. Welcome back. We've got Alex and Skeeva over here on the other side of the studio. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves for the people who don't know and uh, tell us what you guys did last week. Hey, everybody. I'm Alex. That's Skeeva. We are Between Realities. And um, we were, first of all, we have a show, right? We have a podcast. We do. We do have a show. Yep. Yeah, we have a show. It's called Between Realities, all right? It's on YouTube. It's the very same website you're on right now, and we do a show every Friday. you got to come check it out. Uh, last week, this week, last week? Last week, we were at AWE, and uh, everybody knows that, right? We had the video come out today um, that you guys put together that kind of did some of the best of the show floor for us, but uh, we did all kinds of stuff, and we had a blast at the expo. Awesome. Yeah, I was I've been looking through your footage trying to like process everything you guys saw. It was hard for me. The the one I loved is I'm going to throw this one up here. Uh where I'm sorry about that. I had the format wrong. I think it's full screen now. Uh this one cracked me up to no end. I saw you guys do this. So what was the <laughs> what was the scanning system here because the the 3D model here of you is is really impressive to me, Alex. What what was going on here? 
we were blown away by this. As soon as I saw, we were like, I was like dying laughing when I saw these animations of this 3D model. Um, we were actually just kind of cruising through the show floor and we, uh, we had no intentions of bumping into this or seeing this at all. Um, but, uh, the CEO of the company, I really wish I could remember his name right now. He was just posted up like near the entrance to this playground area with a big old sign that says in 3D. And, you know, I was talking about avatars. And uh, we just cruised up to him and just kind of struck up a conversation. And he started to explain to, her, to us how in 10 seconds with an, a phone or an iPad or any other normal mobile device, you can do a volumetric scan of your body and turn it into a fully rigged boned up avatar that you can then export to use in social VR applications. And it, it sends it to you in like two minutes. It, it was insane how quickly this image and this model and this demo became available to, available to us after we set up and did the scan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was crazy to me. And I, I just love it. listening to your laughter as you're watching these things. Like it, It's clear that that is a real fun experience right like i could see that going a lot of places so it's really uh, it's really awesome and it's super important to be able to do things like this right we all kind of want to be represented in some of our favorite social apps um and you know facebook and meta are doing all this work on realistic avatars and to be able to scan yourself in with an iphone or an ipad in like 10 seconds man, i think that's just really awesome and what's crazy is that it's actually not, it's, it's really how long it takes you to spin around because I spun around yeah. in like seven and a half seconds and then stood there motionless for the duration of the 10 second like timer. So it was so instant and it doesn't have to be his iPad, right? It can be anybody's iPad at home. The app is available for free. It's called in 3D. I'm pretty sure you can go and get it right now. And yeah, you can. <laughs> Yeah, you can make two avatars for free, and then after that, it's like four bucks an avatar or something. Mm -hmm. um, and we haven't had an opportunity to like export it or play with it or, or do anything like oh, that. Oh, I have it exported. Oh, you do? I do. Nice. <laughs> so, so at this I, point, I brought it into Blender, in and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to import it into Neos, which I haven't done yet, but uh, but. I mean, that's the cool thing about this, right? VR chat, Neos, any of the social applications, you can bring it in there. This version at this time doesn't have uh, the, the, the eyeballs that move and the mouth right. that moves, but the next version that's coming soon, according to what we were told, uh, will have all of that stuff as well. So. Yeah. So uh, going back, I mean, that one stood out to me when I was looking through the footage that you guys captured. It's just you know, wow to me. Uh, but what were the wow moments for you each personally over there at, at AWE? You want to start? Sure. So, I mean, I would say the very first thing is Haptex, which is this actually on the screen right now, uh, right? Where you wear these giant gloves that look like, um, that look like something out of an Avengers movie, right? Like the gauntlet that, that uh, Thanos uses. <laughs> but being able to feel textures and uh, grab objects and feel the shapes of them in your hands, um, be able to differentiate between water dropping on your palms and the feeling and the texture of a cat, let's say, uh, some of the things that we experienced in the demo was really cool. There was this uh, one part of the demo where you, where you pull on a string and then you pluck the string with your fingers and you feel the resistance of the string uh, and you feel the texture of it while you're plucking it as well. Then, you know, this thing is very expensive for enterprise, obviously, but uh, once this kind of tech is miniaturized and affordable, it's, uh, it's such a game changer. 
Mm. Yeah, you know, I, initially I like you know I'm, I, when you see the gloves, it's it's obvious. You can really see the um, like the force feedback bands like floating on the top of it, you know. And I'm thinking to myself like, okay, here comes a bunch of awesome force feedback. But it was really the skin displacement stuff that they have going on in those gloves that was like the mind blowing aspect of it to me. There are all of these really small actuators in the fingertips and on the palms that basically function as um, mini airbags that inflate and deflate in real time based on what you're touching to simulate the texture of an object that you're holding in your hand. So one of my favorite parts of the demo was grabbing onto a vine that had a bunch of leaves wrapped around it. And when you grab the vine and you pull it, you can like strip the leaves off as the vine is passing through your hand and you can feel them like popping off and stuff. And it was really, really awesome. Huge, super heavy backpack, right? Like obviously not something that you're just going to use on a regular basis, but definitely the most realistic haptic experience that I've had so far. Mm -hmm. And that backpack, like you were saying, was really heavy, but it, uh, it contained air compressors and vacuums to be able to quickly, um, put air into these little tiny pouches and then suck them out really, really fast. Uh, so, you know, again, stuff has to be miniaturized and the cost has to come down. Uh, cause I think it was what around 20,000, 20,000, 20, yeah, like 25, 25, I think something like that. So, but, uh, we're getting there. The, the fact that this stuff exists right now is, is unreal. I mean, people were waiting in line for that demo for hours Oh, dude, Powers. yeah, like felt awesome and bad at the same time as we like <laughs> flash our press badges and just cut the two-hour line. Like, excuse us, upload VR coming through. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. I, I totally understand that like guilt of like, you know, like yeah. you've, you've got a, only 10 minutes in your schedule and there's all these people glaring at you in the line. Like, yep. oh, I talked to them beforehand. I, I checked with them. I, I made sure I was good <laughs> for this to do this. Yeah, it uh, is what it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. So the thing about uh, haptics, so I, I'm going to, I reached out to them over email to try to get those things down about where they are with their products, what they're planning to do next. We'll have an article up on uploadvr.com very soon, diving into ex exactly those specifics to, to go with uh, some of what you saw there. And the thing that got me is haptics was the one who actually sent out a press statement back when Meta debuted uh, a version of their own technology that's very similar, I believe. And it's going to be really interesting. It's, it's actually a fairly big vote of confidence in their approach to pro providing this haptic effect to see Meta also doing the same thing. At the same time, it's entirely threatening that one of the biggest technology companies in the world is doing you know going down the same route that you are so yeah. uh we're obviously going to come back to that uh them a lot over time i've seen them a couple of years ago and it's always been an, a really cool demo but getting the price to where it's going to be something you have to have is going to be the the key moment and they're going to be battling some of the biggest ones against we're far i think we're pretty far away from that i yeah. mean mm -hmm. i don't even i wouldn't i don't even i wouldn't even begin to guess like what 10 years before we start to see this technology in people's houses, maybe, probably. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is big. It's heavy. It's uh, it's hard to put all this stuff on by yourself. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So yeah, true that. That's a that's mm -hmm. a really good point. Yeah, I needed mm -hmm. like a team of people to suit me up. I I remember Abrash's comment at one of the Oculus Connects was the moment that you really feel this with the amount of fidelity that we've got on current VR headsets. So like, if they're able to match the fidelity of the haptics, so that they're at the level 
where we're so immersed in the headsets uh, visually. So audio and visuals are really immersing ourselves in VR right now, but the haptics are just absolutely rudimentary. If they can get it up to that level, it's going to be a light bulb, you know, shifting moment for your conception of computers the moment you feel that for the first time. Did you guys get any of that, like, feeling trying out this demo? I would say so. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time doing haptic stuff with my work and be haptics. And, you know, the ERM motor haptics, I absolutely love. But I often kind of refer to those as, like, um, like suggestive experiences, you know, or they like are like, Im- like they imply experiences. Whereas haptics like this are a lot closer to like delivering the same experience. You know, it's not just like, okay, and yep, see, that's where you got shot. It's like, you know, no, we're trying to get closer and closer to what that might actually feel like. So like I said, there's multiple moments. I think Skiva hit, 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 that's probably one of the best moments where you're plucking the string because you really kind of like feel that resistance, mm-hmm. which is basically in just in the in midair, you know, it's just like ping, 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 and you can feel that. And it's really special. Yeah, it's a big deal. Have you ever, have you ever had someone that's used a Quest 2 and through their entire life of using the Quest 2, they've never put on headphones, right? And then mm-hmm. one day they put on a good set of headphones and they're completely blown away all over again, right? So every, every sensory input that we're able to mimic in VR brings such a huge immersion boost into the overall technology and experience of the whole thing. Uh, and this was that times a hundred for me. You know, it was really unreal to grab an object like a, like a globe, like a ball and feel that, feel the textures and feel my hand and my fingers stopping as I'm grabbing this object, like I'm actually holding it in real life. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's huge. I mean, it would be really nice to not have to lug around what feels like a person on my back, but um, (laughs) the, the, how amazing the whole experience was, you almost forget about that. Oh, and last thing on the force feedback, I personally feel like the force feedback on this is, and on other applications of force feedback that I've seen as well is still very much in that like, su- oh, geez, in that like su- uh, suggestive, like implying phase, you know, like it restricts your fingers enough to imply that you shouldn't be able to close your fingers. But it, to me, it doesn't feel like I'm holding something in my hand, you know, mm-hmm. like I think we're, we still have some ways to go for that. And there's a lot of different elements to to like, you know, it's a very different thing to put your hand on a flat table versus holding a ball. And we might get one of those things long before the other one. Right, uh, right. Some of those things might even be impossible. Demio, can we talk about Demio? What was that like Please. in AR? You saw that in <laughs> augmented reality, right? Yes, it was awesome. I did my best to capture some through the lens footage as people were like clamoring to get their hands on the headset, like waiting for us while we're just like messing around, taking pictures and stuff. Um, so I like tried my best to kind of get some, some through the lens and you can see in the through the lens footage in this video that, um, that you guys put up today or yesterday that, um, it looks great. Like the visual fidelity of the environment of Demio is, has actually, has absolutely been captured. And, you know, as a whole, I think the AR presence at uh, at AWE was really strong and really cool. And we'll get to more of that, I think in a second, mm-hmm. but this was the first time that I thought to myself, 
maybe I actually might want a pair of, of AR glasses at home, you know, like as a gamer and as someone who, you know, likes to have something that kind of keeps me in there. Like so many experiences that you have when you go to things like this are cool for like some minutes, you know what I mean? It's like, Hey, this is really awesome for like 10 minutes, but maybe after 10 minutes, the, the novelty starts to wear off a little bit and you're like, okay, like, do I need to keep these glasses on any longer? No, I think I got what I needed here and you can kind of move on with your day. But Anybody who's played Demio knows that you can't get out of Demio without spending two and a half, three hours. So this is the kind of application that I can see will provide hours of use every time I put my headset on, as opposed to like minutes of use. And that really, really excites me. Um, what was running on the headset? was just a demo. Um, so it wasn't like a full game. It wasn't multiplayer or anything, but all of the interactions that you expect to work in Demio absolutely were working. And it was using a phone as a controller and your gaze as like your, your mouse or, you know, or like where your controller would be. So I would look at my piece and then just, there's only one button that you have to interact with on the phone. So I look at the, at a, like my game piece and get the laser on it and then hold the button on the phone and then look where I want it to go and then release the button, mm -hmm. you know, and then like, you know, look at the next thing, like look at my card, hold the button, look at the spot on the board that I wanted it to cast and then release the button. And it felt intuitive. And like I said, it got me really excited about actually maybe playing some real AR games and keeping some AR glasses on for an extended period of time. What mm -hmm. are your thoughts? So I was really, I was really excited about this, more excited than I thought I was going to be. You know, I mean, I think we've all played Demio and uh, it, it's, a, it's an amazing game. But to actually see the Demio board sitting on a table and be able to look around and see you, see all of these people around us. Uh, and there's the Demio board right, right in the middle of where we're standing. It was, it was bizarre. And the thing that blew me away most about this, I was not prepared for how crisp and clear that board was going to be the visual fidelity of, of the board itself uh, with the glasses we wore, which were the Lenovo uh, think think glasses. Yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I was, I was, I was really amazed. The colors were super vibrant and really nice. Um, it was a sharp picture. I didn't notice any anti-aliasing happening. Uh, it was really, I mean, it was, it was amazing. I really, really enjoyed and here's, it. And here's the huge thing, right? The headset, everybody who wears a VR headset playing Demio knows after two hours, three hours, uh, you're like, okay, this thing's getting heavy. Like I've been looking down for a long time. And the mm -hmm. form factor of a pair of glasses compared to a headset, right? It's yeah. like night and day, so much Absolutely. lighter. I would love to keep a set of glasses like that on for three hours and play Demio mm -hmm. rather than this big old brick that I put on my forehead to do it currently. Yeah. Ian? Uh, now I'm seeing in our comments here, Bicycle talking about Tilt 5, and that's exactly where I was going to go with this question, where uh, Tilt 5 is at this event, uh, just like some of these other AR headsets. And that think, those Think Reality AR glasses, I believe those are directly based off of the Qualcomm reference design for a certain generation. So Qualcomm makes these reference designs for AR and VR headsets every uh, six months to a year to let other manufacturers take them and go and, and build on that system. And I think that's more or less what we saw uh, this game uh, demonstrated on. But right now, there's a lot of backers out there waiting for shipment of their Tilt 5 gear. And the Tilt 5 seems like a match made in heaven. And I can imagine everyone going by that Tilt 5 booth 
at uh, Augmented World Expo are like, hey, can you can you get the thing I saw at the other booth running on Tilt 5? And I, I'm also noticing someone in our comments talking about Lynx R1, and they're crossing their fingers for this to hit the Lynx R1. And, you know, Resolution Games, they're, they're doing really good right now, but they're still having to pick which platforms to focus on. And, you know, I'm just going to put it out there that if you are wanting Demio on a specific AR headset down in the future, go in and hit up the developers and tell them that. I think, you know, pass along that desire to them because I think they need to hear uh, what platforms are likeliest, you know, are the best best for this game, right? That is how it would get done. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, and that is how it would get done. Ultimately, it's not on Tilt 5. You know, Tilt 5's down. You know, I asked Jerry about it during our interview. I was like, hey, so sorry about this, but everybody wants to know, what's the deal? Like, can we get the email on this thing? And she was like, yeah, we would love to. Um, tell Resolution Games. You know, yeah. like Resolution Games is is ultimately, I think, the ones that are going to need to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. And I did. I did tell Resolution Games that I was standing <laughs> there for a good amount of time, just, you know, having a conversation with... Um, with the, the president or uh, founder of Resolution Games, and I expressed how much I would love to see that game on the Tilt 5. You know, it, with knowing that that they are selling a lot of copies on the Quest and the Quest 2, and that is a substantial amount of money, and how many copies are they really going to sell on the Tilt 5, right? Is mm-hmm. it actually worth them Dozens. going and, and putting this on there, right? But... If they, for some reason, decided to do this, um, it would be that thing would be a demio machine. I would buy that in a minute. I wouldn't even think about it. That would be how I would play this game because it really and truly is a match made in heaven. Um, and they are very aware that people want this uh, that game on Tilt Five. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but here's it's the in interesting brain. thing. Here's the interesting mm-hmm. thing. It's actually not the VR version of demio that Tilt Five would need. It's the PC mm-hmm. version. Like those aren't mm-hmm. VR games or AR games. You know, those are like PC games, I guess, that have been, you know, worked around to work with the Tilt 5, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, we like, we are, we love immersive stuff. So immediately our brain is like, oh, what other VR games can I bring into this Tilt 5 experience? And I don't think it works like that. I think that there, you'd be more apt to see like, uh, you know, iterations of, of flat screen titles that can then be brought into mm-hmm. the AR space with that. Well, yeah. there, there is this disconnect with OpenXR where, I, you know, I don't think Tilt 5, I think Tilt 5 is very interested in OpenXR, but it's not a priority for them because they have to go to this market in this very specific way of getting people to build board games that are going to work really well on their platform, or just games that are going to work really well on their platform. And while OpenXR could let them bridge to other systems it's just not a priority and so like i i I, i'm curious where resolution lands on supporting that going forward that could be a hang-up to getting this on some of the systems people people want but yeah i think a lot of people in our comments are really excited about this possibility and uh, yeah Mm -hmm. I, i cannot recommend enough going and sort of tweeting uh, your polite request uh they can do it on your headset they can do it three weeks is how long (laughs) they've known about demio ar Oh. three weeks like they got the headset bam they put something together boom they brought it to to awe it was like instant turnover kind of stuff and they got that thing looking fantastic for the demo that we got to see so if anybody can do it i think resolution games can mm-hmm. 
imagine a game like Rocket League or something on the Tilt Five as well. I mean, there's so many, so many good possibilities of how this could be a thing. Uh, one of my my concerns last time we talked about Tilt Five was that I don't think it's viable until you can have multiple headsets uh, using one machine because you're gonna. This is a social. This is a social thing. You're not. You know, the attraction here is to sit around this board with other people and friends and to look at the same board and and play. Uh, they talked a lot, which you saw in the interview in this video about how they are testing this stuff. There's internal driver sets right now on getting multiple headsets working on one machine, getting headsets uh, plugged into um, Android devices and being able to run some of the games off of that as well. Uh, so this is very much in the works uh, and, you know, would be very excited if, if it happens soon. Uh, it's definitely one of the things that would months. get me to. Yeah, I think she said like a month and a half times, but you, you know, you, you don't know until it happens. So right. yeah. um, things can shift those timelines all yeah. the time. But yeah, four mm-hmm. devices from four headsets from one device is going to be absolutely critical to making yes. the Tilt 5 a more appealing device overall. Um, mm-hmm. I'm seeing people in our comments. There's two things uh, that people have questions about, as I sort of expected. Gallia, they've seen it in our footage up there, and whether it was demoed, number one. And then uh the, the other one I want to get into is you guys, uh, Alex in particular, pushing Gore-Tec and actually getting a Gore-Tec rep uh, face-to-face. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Gallia first. So what did you guys see uh, from that brain-computer interface? It's going to cost, uh, I believe, 20000 plus yep. uh, paired with the Vario Aero headset sometime next year. So it is a just – it's beyond – it's a down payment on a house, even beyond a down payment yes. on a house as far yes. as uh, cost of this device. But what is it going to open up in the future there, this this idea? You want to take this? Sure. So it was it was interesting, right? Because they had this set up there. They did not have it paired with the Vario. It was still on an index, which I found very interesting. Um, and they weren't able to demo, demo it to us. Uh, there were a few demos from what I heard that happened very early on, um, that I guess, I don't, I, I don't know why they weren't able to keep these demos running. Uh, I really, really wanted maybe? to try it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. I really wanted mm. to try it though, but, uh, you know, yeah, or maybe they is. had like, you know, I, if I had to guess, because when we caught them, it was almost like in a sweet spot time. You know, when we had our, our interview with Vario and we're like, all right, where's the Gallia? And they're like, oh, they're not in here. And we're like, what do you mean they're not in here? Like, we need to see that. And they're like, okay, well, you know, you can come back at like one. They should be back in the room at like one. So I'm guessing that they had like maybe some like really big meetings or like really big demos or something. And they were like maybe a little more mobile on the second and third day um, mm-hmm. rather than the first day. They just kind of got their setup, tested everything, made sure it worked. And I think a handful of people managed to get demos as a result of that. Um, so we didn't try it in action to, to Skiva's point there. Um, but we did see it. Right. Like we've got a bunch of footage of it. We both tried it on and, you know, we got an explanation as to like what was going on on it. And, uh, you know, we, we at least got to like see the prototype and hear from the people who are making it kind of, you know, what they're doing, what their expectations are and all of that. And you can see that in the interview as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately we, uh, were not able to see it in action, which of course would have been amazing. 
Mm-hmm. And I, you, you did have some B-roll of like over at the computer showing some readouts going across. The, the thing, so I have an interview sort of in my archives with uh, OpenBCI over there, the people who are making Gallia. And that organization has been making basically the parts that go into various brain-computer interfaces. And they've been selling those to customers over the years. And what they're essentially doing is they're taking some of their most popular products putting it all into one computer interface and then strapping that on to a VR headset. And at the end of the day, when this thing actually ships, I think they're only going to ship a couple hundred of these things initially, you're going to have a device that is basically painting your intent as a human out onto the computer. Right? It's writing out onto the computer what you're interested in as you look around in a virtual space. And people in our comments are like, how does uh, how do data protection laws uh, deal with that sort of thing? The thing that I thought was interesting in that conversation with Op- OpenBCI is they really do aim to be uh, the opposite of the model that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook had. They want to have a model where this data streams to your PC and you own it and you can delete it as needed. And uh, there, you know, you need kind of an open uh, example of that to end users, potentially to pressure companies like Meta to follow those same policies of giving people control over their, their data. Um, but obviously, this is, you know, did, was it heavy? Did, did the sensors feel uncomfortable? What was it like to feel this stuff sort of, all this yeah, extra stuff heavy, on your head? Slightly heavy, slightly uncomfortable. The sensors mm-hmm. were like, um, they almost reminded me of like rubber, like feet that you would like put underneath of like a table or something like that. There's like these little rubber stopper kind of things. Um, so it was a little heavy and a little bulky. You know, it's funny. I didn't notice him cl- clip things to my earlobes. They have these like mm. little these little clippies that go onto your earlobes, and I didn't oh, even notice yeah. that he put them on there until I tried to take the headset off, and I was still connected somewhere. Um, so yeah, it's like not exactly a comfortable device to put on. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that a lot of the like the readings and a lot of the sensors are grabbing things like um, like facial movements and stuff like that, you know, like a small little eye twitch and you can actually start to like use those things to make stuff happen. It's less like, Hey, we're going to gather all of your subconscious eye squeezings and more like, Hey, if you squeeze your eyes a little bit here and there, it can have a really profound effect on your experience, you know? So I think it's in its current iteration, in its current iteration, it's doing more like, providing you with a lot more tools based on your biometrics than like reading your thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. but it's still a very, very much an interesting step towards that inevitability of you know, potential inevitability of us being able to like really be, you know, neuro- neurologically or like neurally connected to all of these experiences. Yeah. A, a lot to do with the weight too, is that it's attached to an index and the index is already the heaviest headset on the market. So I would have loved to have tried this uh, fitted to a Vario arrow Mm -hmm. uh, to see how that would work Uh, a lot of the weirdness about how this feels on your head is is it is these little rubber things with with these little fingers and it needs to get down into your hair to be able to touch your scalp so it does feel strange and it is heavy and i you know and again it might be a lot to do with that might be the weight of the index itself um but we'll find out uh hopefully next time we get to see this thing and uh see it attached to the headset that it'll be shipping with 
The, ex- the examples that I always come back to with BCR or even iTrack, one of the things that got me on this is I, I believe the system has, like Air, Vario has eye tracking built in. And then I want to say Gallia also has electrical eye tracking built into the face uh, part of the device. And so between the eye tracking built into Vario as well as their own eye tracking, they're actually going to do, they should actually be able to do some pretty significant high quality eye tracking with this system. And over the years, Toby eye tracking, I've used it years ago. Uh, it was night and day being able to like have this, like I, I'm looking at a field and I'm throwing an object at these things. And because the eye tracking knows every object that I'm looking at, the objects that I throw arrive there every single time. The exact same concept would work with the gravity gloves and Half-Life Alex, where I'm looking at an object in the environment and I want to pull it to me. It's going to be that much more responsive. But that's just the beginning of the data that's going to come out there. It's just uh, how many sensors do you need to improve the fundamental gameplay aspects of the next generation of, of games is is the path, right? An open BCI is going to look at how these devices do and try to figure out which sensors are unnecessary in their next generation lower cost product that might actually ship in larger quantities. So that is kind of the path that I think open BCI and Galley are going to try to go. And it's just they're, they're starting off at the exact top end of the line. Uh, partnering with Vario there next year. But obviously, a, a very long road ahead for us seeing what's actually going to come out of that system. Um, I just did that Toby eye tracking demo you're talking about, where you can fix your eyes on something and chuck a rock and hit the bottle. And it felt so great. Yeah, I, I loved that. it. I loved it was it. so. I saw that like four years ago or something like that. And I've been dying for eye tracking ever since then. And each and every generation, like, where's the eye tracking? Where's the eye? It's, I don't know. We've got to be getting really close to all that grabbing stuff getting far, mm-hmm. far much better. Um, I want to talk about uh, Gore-Tec. All right. So I don't know if I have this video in, I don't have it queued, queued up, but Alex went over there and found a representative of Gore-Tec and put some questions to uh, the rep that I sort of asked you to, to ask. And I didn't expect them to answer them and they didn't answer them. <laughs> but <laughs> putting, putting them on the spot uh, and getting those answers actually paints a picture of this very fundamental company in the VR ecosystem right now. So uh, t- tell me about going and finding them and then we'll, we'll run through what Gore-Tec is actually doing out there. Sure. So, you know, I, it was, uh, it was a pretty, pretty typical run of the mill interview for, for us. You know, we were just kind of cruising through the floor and we knew that Gore-Tec was a company that we needed to hear from. Um, so we popped over and, you know, set up a time to come and check it out. And, you know, I kind of gave them a heads up too, which I don't usually do in my interviews. It's very rare that I'm like, Hey, here's what I'm going to ask you. So get ready. But I knew that these were going to be some like more controversial questions for them to respond to. So I was like, Hey, by the way, Heads up, I'm about to ask you about this. So here we go. Pow. And then we just kind of jumped right into it. Um, and I think he did a pretty good job of uh, responding. And I kind of f- feel the same as you. Like once he was done answering the questions, I personally felt like I had a much 
clearer idea as to who this company was and what they were doing. And they were also like scrambling to remove a bunch of headsets that were on their table. Like, <laughs> right before the, you know, like hold on, we're like, let's get this out of here. Like, let's put this one away. There was, and I guess, I mean, we were there, right? There was a Quest 2 on the table. What else was, do you remember what, what else was on that table? Oh, geez, you know, I don't. Well, no, the Quest neither. 2 was still sitting on the table behind your interview. That's what I love. Oh, so okay, he's like, great. There, here's this rep from Gore-Tec uh, saying, you know, you've asked, you asked three different ways. Can you say who your customers are, essentially? And they're like, no, we, we just we can't say the customers, but we do uh, work on some of the most popular VR headsets. And the Quest 2 is sitting on a table <laughs> right behind the rep as they're giving you those answers. So uh, we've got all indications, you know, Gore-Tec is the company that's making the Quest 2. We believe that they're the company that's uh, going to be behind all some of the next generation headsets. And that's actually a really, really fascinating situation to be in where we could be in a, in for this situation where PSVR 2 and Quest 2 are both being physically made by the same company and they're somehow separating their departments and having these competing products actually designed or manufactured by by completely separate divisions and that's actually what you got out of this Gore-Tec rep Alex was them saying yes it's very hard for us to make sure that we have a uh, separation between our different customers and we serve them all and then at the end of this conversation they say Gore-Tec they they officially you know we've got a comment from them saying they are not going to ship a product under their own name and that's significant because it tells all of our readers out there, hey, if you want to really understand what's going on in the VR industry, Gore-Tec is a company name you might want to know about, even if they're not actually putting their name brand on the products you buy at the end of the day. So that was really cool to see. And, yeah, they're responsible for making a lot of these headsets and a lot of the tech that's behind them. And just being in in the world that we're in right we are we live in nda land there's so many things we can't talk about until certain dates and when you're working on headsets for all of the com competing headsets that are all competing against each other i i can't even imagine right it, it must be so difficult to talk about anything that they're doing so um yeah, we expected the answers we got, and I'm sure you did too. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it was it was still good to talk to the company that uh, is responsible for so much of this tech and and putting this stuff together. So, you neat. know what I really really loved at AWE was Ultra Leap Two. Mm. Ultra Magic Leap Two. Magic Leap. Yeah. Man, yeah. I get those <laughs> names confused so much. I've man. always thought that I, I thought they should combine. So it's yeah, super ultra Magic Leap. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Super ultra magic leap. Magic leap two was awesome. It was yeah. definitely the best AR demo that I've ever had. Awesome field of view vertically, especially, right? Like I think that's where a lot of these really lack. And even on the edges where horizontally the image is being cut off, they had this like really clever like fade out vibe where like the image kind of like fades to black on the edges as opposed to like bam these like really hard cut and defined lines mm -hmm. of like what your viewable space is and i was loving that demo and i loved it even more when they fired on this like dimming feature that they mm -hmm. have where i don't know how through some kind of black magic they reduced the light and like basically turn everything in the background to black through your eye through your the view of the of the glasses while illuminating all of like the AR images that are on the screen and it was like 
it was awesome. Like it kind I, of flipped the switch awesome. to turn it into VR. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was like interesting closer to VR in that moment than it was AR because you can't see the room around you. All you're seeing is like the images that you're supposed to be seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, so this was great. And I mean, I don't know what else to say. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I'm like less the hardware guy and just more about the experience. It was great. This experience was fantastic. It absolutely was great. The glasses themselves were sexy. They were pretty comfortable. Uh, the whole thing with being able to remove the world around you and turn it pretty much just into a VR experience was something I was not even prepared for. When that happened, my jaw hit the floor. Mm -hmm. You know, it was pretty wild. Uh, we also, one of the cool things, we didn't really get to mess with the controller much, but, but looking at the controller and, and taking pictures of it and stuff, uh, we saw that companies are now using cameras for their controller tracking, which I thought was a really cool thing too, because that kind of moves over to different headsets that we know are coming out. Um, mm -hmm. So that's pretty neat to actually see the controllers with the cameras in them. Uh, but the image on the on the Magic Leap 2 was beautiful, it was very vibrant, um, very bright. Um, they gave us some cool demos uh, where they put you know, like a mountain uh, on a table in front of us, and they were they were showing how this can be used in fire response, and and how uh, the weather systems will will kind of blow across and push the fires of wildfires in, in certain directions for responders to be able to to um, to quickly respond to and and kind of take care of those things. But but the tech behind this all was was really really impressive, and it was a very comfortable headset. Um, that so, hooked up yeah. to a hockey puck on a guitar strap. Mm -hmm. It's like a hockey puck on a guitar strap. You like put the little strap on, and that little puck is attached to it, and the cable is attached to that, and that's what's like powering the experience. Yeah. So instead of having the compute unit inside the headset, uh, you are kind of wearing it like a little purse. Mm -hmm. Right. P did you this see a whale? People are in the comments. Asking, <laughs> saw whales. We did not see a whale. No no but it was a like like he said it was like a like a wildfire simulation thing and they were like adding and removing weather effects and changing the landscape and stuff and you know obviously trying to show people like practical use applications because for some mm -hmm. reason like that's just so important as these companies are growing is that they can like explain to people how it can be used like right now you know it's like hey no look and we need this isn't this can help you do x y or z you know but like I'm a gamer, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I just love experiences and mm -hmm. I loved the experience. Like I didn't, it didn't even need to be useful for me. It was just so cool. Yeah. So much of the show was augmented reality. I was absolutely floored at how, how far we're coming in AR in such a short period of time. I really thought this tech was going to take a lot longer to evolve. Um, but all these companies are working on this. Uh, they they see the importance and why this is going to be a game changing technology and uh, it's really come leaps and bounds and I can't wait to see how much further yeah, it's going to come in the years. Just to come. in three years, man, in these mm -hmm. three years that we've been doing Huge. stuff, you know, like it went from like zero compelling experiences to like multiple compelling experiences. Yep. Our people are uh, showing using whale emojis throughout our comments now. They're uh, <laughs> I don't yeah, blame them. Spam <laughs> by it. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So any other demos that you guys want to talk about from AWE that really stuck out in your minds? Um, what about probably. the uh, the Red 6 demo? So so we did another AR uh, experience where they're using uh, augmented reality to train jet fighter pilots. That's, that's the right. one where they had a sign that said the military metaverse, right? It's, uh, 
right? I think it was military metaverse in their boots, and I thought that was a very interesting song. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're actually taking people up in jet fighters. They're putting on uh, an AR headset attached to their to their standard equipment, and they're dogfighting AR jets in the sky. Like wow, and and more practically running like training simulations for like refueling and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, like people are getting the training that they need to like refuel other jets in the sky without using that second jet. Like before, they used to mm-hmm. have to take two planes up to the sky and then like actually do the thing to get your practice. But now one jet can go up. The guy in the back seat's wearing the AR helmet, and when he looks up out the window, there's an AR jet. And they're running their simulation just as they would, just as they would if there was a a second ship up up in the air with them. So mm-hmm. um, you know, again, it's like one of these. Here's like a real practical use application of the tech, yep. you know. Um, but also, this is especially cool because they're using it at thirty thousand feet, you know, in a fighter jet. And we got an invite to go check it out, and. We're going to try to do it because <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, we did get an invite, and uh, Alex can definitely do it, but uh, they looked at me, and they're like, you are not going to fit in a fighter jet. <laughs> All right, so that, that brings me back to like the very first question we got in this. I think they wanted to see you in the yaw, uh, Skiva. They wanted oh, to see you going around. There's that, footage. Yeah. There is footage. And I got to tell you, I really, really love the yaw, too. Like I, I, that is one thing that I might, so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of slide mills happening these days, a lot of big bulky devices, none of which I am willing to take up my space with, uh, the yaw too, I would actually, I'd actually bring that thing home mm-hmm. and, and use it a lot. Uh, I, I did get to play with it. Um, it felt really solid. I got to play with the yaw one as well. And that one was a little bit more difficult when I was playing with that. Uh, some of the guys actually had to help push it. <laughs> it wasn't strong enough to, uh, <laughs> to move the skiva, but this one was, this one was, and it felt really, really good. Subscribe so. to between realities and we'll, we'll put a video of skiva and the yaw up there for you guys to see this. Week. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I, thank you guys for going there and giving us that download of everything that's going on over there at AWE. That was awesome. Great to see all that uh, future tech, all that stuff that's coming down the line. You guys have another Backseat VR Dev episode coming this week, right? We yeah, do. I guess there should be one every Wednesday from now on for the foreseeable yeah. future. Yep. Uh, um, but we don't know who, which episode this is. We've got a handful of them recorded now, so... Yeah, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm not sure exactly who it is that's going to be appearing on this next one. I don't think we've uh, talked about that, but but no. these are great, right? And and for those of you who watched the first episode, uh, it was super fun to do. It was awesome to play to play these games uh, with the devs that made them and kind of ask them questions and have this this live commentary happening as as these games are being played. Uh, we know there was some a few audio issues and some things with the first one, so bear with us as we get better and better every episode with with this. But uh, it's a great show to do, and it's so much fun. Really excited. Yeah, about I, it. I thought the I thought the response was pretty great for the first episode. You know, it seems like mm-hmm. people kind of immediately can see what we're trying to do with it. Um, we're having a ton of fun doing it, and there's obviously something fun that's going to come out of having a conversation with the developer watching you play. Like when they're there and they like see you do a thing, like it like triggers these like memories and stuff. And they're like, Oh, you know, funny thing about when we made this enemy, you know, Oh, it's funny you mentioned that because this, that, or the other thing. So we're really excited about this series. Um, I think it's going to be a hit and um, you should definitely check this out starting or tomorrow, right? Is today Tuesday? 
Yes. Yes. Should yeah, be Tuesday. Yeah, it should be tomorrow. And then we've got our showcase coming up. And so we're really ramping up here. We'll have nonstop news all summer long. Yeah, make sure you go subscribe to Between Realities, see more content over there, and come back to us tomorrow to check out the next episode of Backseat VR Dev. And then later in the week, we'll have the showcase. Thank you all for the comments. And thank you guys for going to AWE. And we will see you in the future. Come back to see us next week here in the VR download at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We'll see you guys later. Thanks, Ian. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.